Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. And we are three friends who meet on this podcast every couple of weeks to discuss what movies we've been watching. Uh, we also write movie reviews for SwampFlix.com. Production's been up lately. Uh, Boomer and I have both been reviewing more rapidly than we have been in the past few months. I mean, maybe you are. I'm I'm reporting <laughs> as rapidly as, as is my normal average. It just seems like more because you're doing more work. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> I don't know. I felt like there was like a dead period at the cinemas early summer where there was just nothing I was interested in. And uh, we're starting to hit a sweet spot where I actually like I'm excited to go out to the movies again. So maybe you'll hear some more positivity on the podcast in the next few weeks. I hope so. I mean, I, I was getting pretty bummed out by how much just pure IP was flowing through theaters earlier this yeah. year. Yeah. And maybe one of the benefits of both the actors and the writers being on a dual strike right now is that there will be less corporate IP flowing just from a matter of practicality uh, over the next year. I don't know. I don't know if it needs to be said, but uh, we stand in solidarity. Oh, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Even in case you were wondering at yeah. what we were, uh, where we stood on this, um, I'm pro every union that doesn't have the word police in it. Exactly. I, I was going <laughs> to say, my, my little brother the other day asked me, what side of the strike are you on? I'm just trying to get a feel for where you stand on important issues. I'm like, why was this even in question? Like, of course, I'm pro this strike. Just strike all the time, everybody. Do you know how many hundreds of hours of old television shows I have on my hard drive that I'm like ready to ride this out? I've got two separate Bruce Campbell TV shows on long out of print DVD that I recently found at estate sales. So test me. Test me now. I've watched three seasons of Top Chef in the past week. I'm, I'm willing to slip into the past as well when necessary. Look, I just finished season three of Sopranos for the first time. I've still got two and two half seasons more to go. So I got plenty of time. I've never watched Breaking Bad and I'm not gonna. I've still got plenty. I got piles of smut. I got plenty to read. I can just be one of those people that's like, I don't even own a TV, which is not true, obviously. But, you know, I don't have to watch TV at all. You think I won't watch Designing Women for the fifth time? Don't threaten me with a good time. Well, we can not elaborate any further because this is a movie podcast and not a television right, podcast. Right, yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah, Sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. So what feature films have you been watching since the last time we talked? Well, in my effort to get caught up on things from last year, which it feels really embarrassing, I watched X for the first time. And uh, for those of you who have missed our reviews of it and talking about it last year, um, X is about this adult film crew who goes to Texas in a farm, a small remote farm, to record an adult film. <laughs> I'm saying that because of our uh, movie of the night. They use the word uh, adult oh, animation. Yeah. Not the last time pornography will yeah, be yeah. today. <laughs> they use the word adult animation a lot. Anyway, uh, yes, they go to this remote farm in Texas to record the movie and of course it ends up being a sort of basic slasher-ish um i enjoyed it i thought it was fun um obviously it is just kind of a mia goth showcase which that's not a bad thing to have it's been somewhat uh overlapped by two better movies since then as well the prequel pearl which is even more of a mia goth showcase 
And then also Infinity Pool this year, I'd say still my favorite performance I've seen on screen all year. She's absolutely unhinged in Infinity Pool. Oh, that's great. She is the best part about it. I love that movie. I know I know you're not as positive on it as I am, but I, I think she carries it in such a deliciously over the top way that like I can forgive so many other faults in it. And I you know, I understand the appeal. You know, I understand that it is a very well made movie. It just left me feeling absolutely nothing. That, that for me personally. And that's kind of how I felt about X, honestly. Like she's really good in it in two roles. Yeah. Which is great. Like she's a very talented performer. But I'm so sick of every major horror movie being set in the 1970s and recreating that like retro grindhouse aesthetic that Rob Zombie's been doing like since I was in high school. Like I'm really ready for horror to move on and stop mining the same genre pastiches from the past and like kind of move on and try a new thing. Even Pearl felt like a huge relief after watching this it's like oh god i don't have to watch another texas chainsaw riff i've seen hundreds i'm I'm ready to you know try something new um i i recently matched with someone on bumble and uh, we had our second date yesterday and on our first date i brought up something from their profile which was that uh you know you can fill out these sections where it's like oh i'm still not over and then you fill in the blank and the phrase that was filled in there was pearl not becoming a star (laughs) <laughs> which I assumed was related to Steven Universe based Aww. on my limited knowledge of that television program. <laughs> um, but as it turns out, it was it was in fact about um, this particular franchise. I did like X though. It had it had some like interesting moments that really pushed on like sexual discomfort in a way that I'm always excited to see. Yeah. I'm just like so bored with the era it set in uh, personally that like I don't know. I was kind of rolling my eyes at some of the aesthetic touchstones of it. Yeah. I liked the sexual politics of it, and there was a line that I really appreciated. Um, So there's the cameraman and his girlfriend, and his girlfriend at first comes across as like this awkward prude, when really she's just kind of taking everything in and absorbing like this new point of view, and he comes across as like this liberated guy who's just like, oh, it's just a movie, it's just business. And so finally she's like, hey, I want to be in this. And he freaks out and um, talks to the lead guy of the porn shoot and is like, you don't understand. She's not like them. She's she's a nice girl. And the lead porn guy is like, none of them are nice girls. And I love that. <laughs> I was like, I hate the, uh, the infantilization of women, first off, but also the idea that you have to be nice or anything like oh these stars they're nice girls too i'm just like i don't know why can't women just be and make their own decisions but anyway i i really enjoyed that like a lot worth noting too that she's played by jenny ortega which yeah. is like what gen z has decided is the scream queen of the moment uh even more so than mia goth and uh, i guess we have to take their word on it yeah so i enjoyed that a lot and you know I'm with you, Brendan, about it all, like, kind of just rehashing the old, like, grindhouse aesthetic and, like, even just shooting the inside of this old, dark farmhouse felt like, okay, I could just be watching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre right now, but it was still fun. I still liked it. The other thing I watched was, I guess, objectively less good, but I still had fun with it. It was uh, Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. Um, so I actually watched another movie from this year, y'all. I don't know. I had a lot of fun with it. I was not feeling like watching something 
serious at all. Uh, I like Chris Pine's transition to being like a hot dad. You know, I know it's not for this crowd at all because it's very like tongue-in-cheek, like self-aware D&D humor, but... It got great reviews. I mean, of all the like huge action comedies that came out this year, like the sort of like four-quadrant crowd-pleasing yeah. stuff, it didn't do well monetarily, but uh, the critics really liked yeah. it. So I, I've heard nothing but good things yeah, about it. Yeah, the critics it. really like it. The nerds really like it. You know, that's fair enough. I can't believe the nerds didn't go in mass to see it, but uh, the ones I knew did. You know, it's basically just a D&D campaign about them having to steal items. It's a heist. It is a D&D heist movie, essentially. And I love a good heist movie. I mean, I think a heist movie is generally a crowd pleaser. Like, I, I don't think I know anyone I that's like, oh no, not a heist movie. As soon as there's a heist, I'm super on yeah, board. Exactly. I watched, not to take us back to television again, but I watched all five seasons of Leverage, which was just an episode where they did heists against corporations and other evil uh, entities. And I recommended it all the time to people and people just didn't get it. But I'm with you. Yeah, a good heist is great. Um, but then, you know, you add in like the D&D nerd references and then the sort of self-aware humor that I know generally amongst the three of us kind of just falls flat like i know none of us here like deadpool at all for instance or i don't know boomers take on deadpool but i know brandon and i both hate it um i thought the first one was fine and then i did go to see the second one in theaters and fell asleep oh okay yeah <laughs> so none of us here are a big fan i would say that some of the humor is similar but i think it's done better i don't know maybe it's just because i don't like Ryan Reynolds acting. I just also have to assume that it doesn't have the same like crass post South Park family guy. No, it doesn't do it. Yeah. Even if it's ironic and like winking at the camera, like, isn't this goofy what we're doing? Yeah, exactly. I can't imagine it's trying to uh, please the 13 year old edgelords in the crowd as, as hard as Deadpool is. No, no, it's definitely not. It's definitely more like hey, millennial nerds who grew up on this stuff. Watch us be funny. Hey, people who listen to podcasts that are just D&D campaigns. Isn't this hilarious? I think it's more of that style of humor. Which, you know, guiltily, sometimes I fall into. So that's what I've been watching. Oh yeah, I watched some Back to TV, but I, I won't harp on it. I watched some more of uh, Strange New Worlds, and I'm freaking loving it. It's so good. Yeah, Brandon, we've been texting. We're going to do another episode of Swamp Trek once season two wraps up. Yeah. Okay. That way you've got it in the bag just in case or for the next inevitable weather event. Yeah. Everybody keep a lookout for Swamp Trek. But yes, there's an episode that is an alien love letter and is so good. It's kind of like a Voyager episode plus alien. So basically it's amazing. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So Boomer, uh, speaking of our mutual love of Star Trek and movies, what have you been watching? Uh, well, when it comes to nostalgia, uh, I went on the day before Independence Day, or the 4th of July. I went on the 3rd <laughs> of July, I guess is a, a more succinct way to say that. Because uh, I had the day off and I've got a movie pass and I went and saw Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny with five other people. I don't mean that like five of my friends went. I mean, there were six of us total in the theater, which kind of <laughs> explains why maybe this movie uh, took so long to break even. 
Um, Anna's being outpaced by fake uh, astroturfing of um, that QAnon weird movie. Uh, I liked it. I gave it a three and a half. You can read more about my thoughts on it um, extensively uh, in the uh, review that is now live on the site. But one thing that Brandon reminded me about after I had sent it off and it had already been published is I, I start that one with a lengthy uh, discussion about whether or not nostalgia is a disease, which is something that comes up on the internet every once in a while. Normally, whenever someone that I follow is upset that other people are enjoying something that that person did not enjoy and they chalk it up purely to nostalgia. And a lot of times it is that. I mean, you know, there are people who are out there, honest to God, defending the Phantom Menace at this oh point. My God, I you know, know, like we live in a we live in a hellscape and it's not just because um, every day is hotter than the last. But uh, one of the things that Brandon pointed out is like this is a franchise that is entirely based upon nostalgia. Like it was a throwback to 40s serials when it came out in the early 80s. So it's always been what it is. And it kind of doesn't make any sense to attack it on that basis. And Brandon, I, I did want to know if you had any more thoughts about that. I'm just thinking now of the difference between the early 80s when those movies were made is equally distant from those 40 serials as it yeah. is to this remake. So like those original films are halfway between its nostalgia source and the uh, film that is now nostalgic for its own time period. You know, you've got this like series, this like three film trilogy, and then 15 years later, you graft another terrible movie onto it. And then almost <laughs> 20 years after that, you release yet another, or maybe, maybe I've got my numbers reversed. Maybe it was 20 years and then 15 years. Either way, like for me, I growing up used to watch the young Indiana Jones Chronicles all the time. Like some of my, I remember one of my earliest memories is sitting in the gym in kindergarten talking about the previous night's episode with a girl named Erica who was in my class who had also watched hi, it. Hi, Erica. Hi, Erica, <laughs> wherever you are. Um, so to me, my whole life has been filled with like dumb Indiana Jones adventures. <laughs> like, you know, those episodes were not the quality of the movies. They were pretty good for television, like amazing stories. Anything that like any of the new Hollywood directors worked on on television was generally better than average, uh, you know, better than the milieu. But I don't think that there was anything particularly special about it. So to me, another bad Indiana Jones story, you know, I find something to enjoy anyway. And I did with the Dial of Destiny. I really enjoy Phoebe Waller-Bridge. But then again, I'm not like a hateful, like red-pilled asshole who spends all of his time online writing bad things about movies with women in them. Um, so don't come looking uh, for that content under my door. Uh, the other thing that I saw in theaters recently, which is currently... And Brandon, I know that you were surprised, maybe not surprised, but you were pleased that I had a much more positive reaction to this than you did. But what might actually surprise you is that this is currently my contender for my number one movie of the year. Uh, it's the new film Past Lives, which came out to a wide release fairly recently starring Greta Lee. I loved this movie. Uh, so it's a movie about uh, these two people, a man and a woman, who... When they were 12, they were classmates, friends, and like, you know, had the potential to be more. Like, the beginning of the movie starts out like a very typical 
oh, they were classmates and then high school sweethearts and they married each other type of story. But then the young girl who take, whose uh, name is Na Young, although she takes on an anglicized name as Nora Moon, moves to Canada, immigrates with her family. And then the film skips ahead 12 years to when they're both 24 and sort of doing um, post-undergrad work in their different fields. And Nora, sort of on a whim, looks up her old friend, Hai Sung, and finds out that he's actually been trying to contact her on Facebook by commenting on, like, his father's or her father's film's Facebook page. But because everything is in her anglicized name, he has not been able to find her. So they reconnect you know, in the distant year of 2012, 2013, or 2011, 2012. And, you know, through a very buggy, sketchy Skype connection, they reconnect and kind of maybe fall in love all over again, only for that sort of long distance, not quite relationship to itself, sort of be scuttled by their different life paths. And then the final act of the film takes place another 12 years later. They're both 36 you know, they've their lives have taken very different paths. She's married to this man that she met at a writing retreat, which was the thing she was going to the last time that she talked to Hai Sung. Uh, he is in a place with his relationship where he's not entirely certain if he wants to move on to the next level with his uh, longtime girlfriend and is sort of using Korean social requisites for having a certain amount of capital before getting married is kind of an excuse not to and it's just it's full of these like beautiful like parallel compositions of images and sort of like really subtle background references to cycles because past lives refers to like you know in their past they were connected to each other and they still are in the way that like people remain connected despite reincarnation um, and it also references this like concept of Indian, which is like, you know, if two people pass on the street, there's been 8,000 layers of this like connective material, this ephemeral predestination fadedness for them to even meet each other or see each other on the street. Uh, I found it very beautiful. I found it very moving. I found it very touching. Uh, there was a person sitting behind me and my companion at the theater who was like weeping openly by the end of it. And I was barely keeping it together. It is, you know, uh, very contemplative and it's very somber, um, but it's pretty short. You know, it, most a lot of times a, a movie like this will be two plus hours, but this was like 90 minutes. So even though it is sort of ponderous in a way that, you know, not everybody is going to enjoy, it's does not it, it's not a very long movie. So, you know, why not give it a shot? That is like the best uh, endorsement of a movie. Why not give it a shot? Why not give it a shot? Like, look, it's it's possible that it could be topped by something else that I see between now and when we write up our end of the year list. But right now, this is my front runner. I mean, you're not alone in that. So I'm not surprised to hear it just because like if you look up like Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes, like best films of the year. I think it's at the top of Metacritics right now, and it's at least in the top five for the other one. I wasn't calling you out or anything, but it sounds like uh, it sounds like you, you're, you're, you thought I was. So I'm just kidding. I was calling you no, out. No, at least I might be surprised to hear it. I'm not. I mean, it, it's like a very popular movie among the same people who had the same ecstatic experience with After Sun last year. Mm. And in both cases, I recognize that they're well-crafted, and that part of the reason that they're praised is that they 
are very restrained dramas that look for small intimate moments between you know especially like two main actors in both cases because they're you know being intimate and small means that there's just like not a lot of cast or activity right it's all about these like little exchanges and like personal drama and in both cases i'm watching these things and there are like some slightly stylish moments to them but i find them indistinguishable from like any number of low budget dramas you see at any film festival in a year and i'm talking about movies that like normally don't even get distribution and i'm always confused by the ones people happen to latch onto. It's like I'm I don't have the the language to talk about this kind of movie. So when uh you stopped me from writing about this, it was like literally I was a sentence into what was going to be a very rambly piece of business uh, where <laughs> I was going to try to come up with a way to talk about this movie cuz it's really just not my kind of thing. Right. So, uh I'm glad someone who really loved it wrote about it instead of me and it probably will rank high on the Swamp Flicks list because uh, I know that James and Hanna both really liked it. Well, you, you know how much I I love to mess with our statistics. So now you might have convinced me to not even put it on my list. Oh, no. No, I'm just kidding. It's the best thing I've seen so far this year. It's it's definitely going there. It's it's very it's top tier movie making for me. And I understand what you're saying, because I often think that um, whenever I like go to a streaming service and I look at what their LGBTQIA plus movie selections oh are because they love yes. to promote them during June. And they are all the same movie. Like yes. 90% of them are all the same plot. Which is why I don't even bother. Like, I'm just like, yeah, I have a, a thing against sad things. Like, obviously, I'll watch a certain level of sad things. But like, it gotta be real good for me to watch sad things. And I just I can't do a sad gay movie, y'all. I just can't. Well, this is this is not a this is not a gay movie, and how how sad it is is up to your interpretation. Yeah, the stakes are pretty small. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Killian Murphy's not going to possibly blow up the world in this movie. Exactly. I do look for a little levity and novelty and stuff. Like I don't want to watch something that's just somber and nothing else. I don't think this movie's exactly that. The most I was engaged for it was in that middle stretch where they're discussing, where they're reconnecting over Skype, which I thought yeah. was like a really interesting acknowledgement of what like modern connection actually looks and feels like. Yeah. Basically, every other part of the movie could have been set at any other time in the past century, uh, except that middle stretch. You do love your technology and movies. I think going back to the X thing, I think, you know, directors should deal with this century head on. And there are a lot of great directors who set everything in the past because they don't want to figure out how to make modern screen imagery interesting. Um, and it's kind of like a coward's way out to like not acknowledge that, you know, the way we communicate and relate with each other has changed. So I, I was most electrified by that section uh, and maybe not so much the rest of it. <laughs> but I, I get what it's doing and uh, I appreciate the craft. It's just, uh, you know, anything that restrained and muted, I'm never going to love as much as something that's like really histrionic and over the top because, you know, that's just the kind of audience I am. But I think it's good to be pushed. You know, I, I like every now and then taking a chance on something that's getting critical acclaim all across the board, even though I know I'm not going to fall in love with it. I get surprised sometimes, but most of the time it's just like, oh, yeah, it's good to, like, taste a different flavor every now and then. And you also know me, like, I love trash. It's just my, you know, I also sometimes really love not trash, I guess. 
Well, I had an interesting experience with past lives where the day before I saw um, Asteroid City in the theater, the new Wes Anderson film. Yes. Uh, speaking of directors who retreat into the past, <laughs> yeah. don't want to deal with what modern life looks like. And I really, really liked it. And then the next day, I watched Past Lives, and I was kind of had a muted response to it. And then I watched Asteroid City a second time. <laughs> for two and did days you love it just as much? Yeah, I did. I, it's, it's a really so complicated good. movie that rewards you know you returning to it to like dig deeper into it because it's got it feels like at least five distancing devices where it's like a frame within a frame within a frame, um, and there's a lot of characters. And what I was thinking of watching those two movies back to back was just like Asteroid City is also a movie built on these like small, intimate character moments, just the way the past lives is. There's just a lot fussier visual stuff going on um, and some goofy slapstick bits, including um, a recurring gag lifted directly from Looney Tunes. (laughs) The cop chase. The police chase that just drives through the town. No, I meant the uh, the Roadrunner that says beep beep every now and then. Uh, oh yeah, I guess the there's a lot of Looney Tunes going on in there. <laughs> yeah, and it, it pulls its um, visual style directly from those Roadrunner cartoons in particular. Like it, it's set in the American West and looks like a postcard with those same like Looney Tunes like flat screen printed colors on it. It's a gem. We both loved Asteroid City. It's it's also up there. My my top three right now, and who knows how it'll shake out, is currently Bo is Afraid, Asteroid City, and Past Lives. Uh, I have Ennis Main, Shin Ultraman, and Smoking Causes Coughing. I am not a serious person. <laughs> Although, yeah. I, I think you would like Ennis Main, though. Fair enough. I You know, and it is, it is something that I need to recognize in myself, that I never go for silly as my number one. I guess the closest I ever got was Knife and Heart, which... Um, it's just because that's the most me movie ever made okay maybe this will be controversial for you boober but i would argue that marcel shell is not a serious serious movie like it's a little silly it's mostly jokes (laughs) yeah and and that's the thing is i'll usually put a serious one at number one and then like number two will be like marcel the shell you know well asteroid city is also a movie packed with jokes oh and they're so funny and everyone was laughing at different things. In my screening, which had a lot more people in it than Indiana Jones, let me tell you. But I was the only one laughing at certain jokes. And there were some jokes that it was like, you know, this part of the theater would laugh. And then some people at like the front and the back would laugh at this particular thing. Um, it's really, it was, it was very layered. And like when you're saying that you got more, you know, to on the second run through, I'm not surprised. Well, the thing is that, Anderson is definitely doing this like self-reflective period right now with his last two movies. And I actually thought that French Dispatch was funnier. Really? And the way I saw the two films was like, the French Dispatch also is very structured and mannered in its framing device in that it is basically a New Yorker magazine. Uh, and, you know, each segment is an article in a larger issue of this fictional magazine, the titular one. And yeah. the way I saw that was like, he is kind of engaging with himself as this populist filmmaker that makes movies for like wide audiences in America, but brings this like kind of snobbier, artsier flair to it than most modern media gets to. I have to tell you, most of my friends hate him. That's that so odd. sad. I know it's very shocking to me too. There's one one of my best friends who like, I think has the best fun. taste. I don't know he. that's the thing is like, I love this person. And when he says something is good, it is good. 
but he also is often wrong about things that are good that he says are bad um and things that he thinks are good which are are also bad um in a couple of instances mostly because i don't know how are you in your 30s and taking south park seriously I'm doing him dirty by ta- have, telling that secret. I have secret. a friend who is like that as well, actually. Every time he, every time Wes Anderson puts out a new movie, he's like uh, Agent Smith in The Matrix. He's like, why, Mr. Anderson? Why do you persist? <laughs> and I think that for, you know what? I might have been doing him dirty, but I, I think that if we're going to have an honest conversation about this, I think that there are a lot of people whose brains have been so completely broken by like the anti-sentimentality of like uh trey parker and matt stone and and their work that maybe he's just impossible it's impossible for him to feel that because you know having feelings is cringe you know yeah, both we're sides all cringe are bad. Now. equally bad you know well that's kind of where i was going was that you know watching french dispatch i was reminded that he is a populist director you know it, it's very pointed that this like snotty magazine that's for you know sophisticates in the movie is being produced in the midwest for an audience of few people and it just felt like a you know sort of self-portrait about what his art does in the american public where it's just like large casts of famous people in a very goofy but also exquisitely visually crafted comedies all of his movies are very funny they are it's one of those things and then watching the new one what i see instead is you know, it's still colorful and visually crafted to like an exquisite caliber, but instead of focusing on the comedy as the main thing, it feels like it's more about his ability to sort of Trojan horse emotions into these very rigid, fussy structures. So like, it's basically like a movie within a play within a television special. And the actors within the play keep breaking character mid sentence and like, asking why are we doing this what does this line mean you know what am i trying to convey here and it feels like you know anderson sort of asking himself like why did i write this why did i have this character act in this inhuman way here and the ultimate answer of the piece is that it doesn't matter the why it's like the emotion that you're expressing behind it is the important part and you're basically just trying to trigger this emotion in the audience and a lot of these characters in all of his movies have these like deep wells of hurt. Like uh, anyone who saw Royal Tenenbaums as a teenager still feels that Elliot Smith needle oh drop. Oh my god! Like, with a you know, yes. oh my deep god, needle in, in the hay. I only have a very loose understanding of what canon events are based on um, like just observing discourse. But whatever that is, I think that's one of them for me. Yeah, yeah, for real. So. There's a reason for this sort of like mannered surface of all his characters. They're all hiding this like deep well of pain. They're all lonely. Uh, a lot of it is about young love and like how impossible it is to hold on to that and like return to it. And I think you get all of that in the new one. You get all of that in Asteroid City, as goofy as it is. But it's also sort of picking apart the why and how. And he's like sort of asking like, how do I pull this off? Like, why does this work? What is this piece doing over here? And that sort of breakdown of the artifice I found very interesting and messy in a way that he usually isn't. So yeah, it, it did reward two watches in 24 hours. And I guess comparing that to my experience with past lives was basically like how I was writing about it at first, was just like, I do need those layers of like artifice and visual beauty and like tinkering with form 
to get to those small character moments, even if the payoff is the same. So like there are a lot of small intimate body language and like a one line meaning the whole world in Asteroid yeah. City in the same way. But like yeah. I kind of needed you know, a puzzle to solve while I was doing it, which I think says more about me than it says about past lives or anything else. And I was just thinking about that a lot, especially with um, the Twilight Zone chant of you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep in Asteroid uh, City. Yeah, I mean, it is sort of like, you know, what is the reality? It doesn't matter. It's so, like, beautiful regardless. Well, also, it's, like, possible to get to these small, intimate moments of passion and interpersonal conflict in cinema on a deeper level if you sort of give in to the poetry and the dreamlike logic yeah. of the art form. And it's not just like a play or a short story or fiction. It's got this other extra layer of artifice and like shared dreams that like that is cinema that's most powerful. And you can still Trojan horse those little emotional moments into that larger structure and maybe even do it deeper because you're like, you know, several layers of subconscious down sort of picking at those same nerves. I think there's even like a, a famous uh, filmmaker quote about it being like cinema being like a shared dream amongst people. But I'm not going to try at this point in time to quote it. I resonate with that way more often now than I do with the Ebert, you know, Cinema is a generates generate empathy. empathy. Yeah, I'm not yeah. as interested in that anymore. I want to like deep dive into someone's id. I want to look at someone's like worst, nastiest impulses, or you know, their most like shameful, sensual impulses. Like, I want to see something beyond you know just experiencing someone else's like real life objective reality experience is not that interesting to me anymore mm. i think my brain's broken no i think i get it and that's kind of how i feel about sad movies like I, if yeah. i want to watch a sad movie i want the sad movie to at least be weird and that's a tall order for sad movies i think by sad movies i think i just mean prestige dramas but you know it's the same thing I mean, there there is a stereotype about like you know Oscar bait movies, how they're all very much the same, and I uh, that stereotype does exist for a reason. But uh, you know, and and this is actually a conversation I have every time I try to recommend a movie to either my mom or my aunt. They're always like, "I don't want to watch anything sad," and like I get that, you know, I I, I get it, but like. We were talking specifically about another movie, but it may as well have been like this where sometimes the ending that is like the happy ending is not the one that is narratively appropriate for the oh, story yeah. that's being told and i don't think that any of y'all are saying either of you are saying this but there are people who would just love it if every movie had a happy ending because it's just like that's where their minds are at it's not like and it's never the people who are like yeah we're living in a horrible you know climate collapse and i just can't stand to be sad it's people who yeah. Already just want all media to have one, like, moral and one concept, you know? And that's, uh, to me, I don't feel like I'm necessarily out there doing God's work, making sure I see movies that make me sad or anything. But, you know, I think that uh, a, a proper media diet shouldn't only have happiness or just like it shouldn't only have sadness. And I'd say that's kind of the benefit of doing this podcast in general is that we make each other watch stuff that you know, we wouldn't individually be interested in personally. Not not that that's all we're doing. We're not like all doing homework assignments all the time, but like there's stuff that I would never think to watch in the first place uh, that we're kind of like trading recommendations yeah, for. Yeah, and I think, right. you know, recently it's kind of become a we're all watching things for the first time podcast, which is also very fun. 
And I know, like, our whole thing as uh, Swaflix is to try and love movies because, like, why are we doing this if we don't love movies? Um, which is, I always try to explain that to people. I'm like, well, like, I, I love my sister-in-law dearly, but one day, like, we were talking and, you know, we were talking about, like, Swanflix stuff and she was like, oh, yeah, you guys watch bad movies. And I was like, no, <laughs> we watch movies that we like or movies that we have, like, critical things to say about. Like, we're not out here trying to watch movies because we don't like them. Uh, I hate I hate to inform you that we're watching Mac and Me on the podcast next um, week. <laughs> Usually I would save that reveal to the end. Well, that's okay. <laughs> but it is a movie I like that also is frequently referred to as a bad movie. It's not a good movie, but it is something that you can like. I no longer recognize the difference between I something I enjoy and something that's good. I know. <laughs> that is the, the same to that me. That is the thing about all of it is uh, there's a, a lot of different kinds of enjoy out there is the other part that I think we do a good job of exploring here. Well, I did go to the theater one other time since uh, the last time we talked. I went to go see a 50-year anniversary restoration of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, the David Bowie concert film. Um, it's been expanded Ooh. and remastered. They like cleaned up the footage a little bit. And it's a 50-year marker after the concert was filmed, not when the film was released. Uh, the film like sat on the shelf for about six years. So like David Bowie had changed personas like twice <laughs> by the time the movie actually hit theaters. So even in its time, it was like a document of something that happened in the past. The sort of consensus opinion of this movie is that it is a shoddy document of a great concert, which I think is true, but I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's actually like a feature and not a bug, at least in this restored version. So they clean it up a little bit visually and they remixed it in surround sound, which in a proper movie theater sounded fucking incredible and is maybe the cleanest I've ever heard of David Bowie recording in my entire life. So I, I'm going to assume that just hearing David Bowie for the first time in a really good sound system was like part of my ecstatic joy with the piece because mm -hmm. uh, it was also expanded by like 15 minutes with a sort of extra behind the scenes footage that wasn't included in the original edit. They basically like threw in everything that hit the editing floor, which probably made it a worse film, I guess. But they, I mean, didn't really bother me because I was just listening to David Bowie for an extra 15 minutes. Not a problem, really. Uh, it's the final concert of the Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars band in London. And the lighting in the venue is very low. So Bowie glows the same monochrome orange on stage for like the entirety of the movie and you can't really see anything else in the room besides him glowing which is a little frustrating because part of what's so lovely about it is seeing all of these like queer nerds in the crowd just rolling their eyes in ecstatic joy like seeing david bowie in the flesh uh, and just sort of like recognizing that that youth culture of that time you know a half century ago is not all that different from the sort of glitter and glam of queer nerds now like a lot of the crowd looks like you'd see them at um you know a local drag show or a punk show or something like that it, time has not really changed that much mm -hmm. which is reflected in david bowie's lyrics like a lot of his songs are about time and change and death in a way that i always thought of as pretty morbid but hearing him sort of break down changes and oh you pretty things especially 
where he was like specifically singing about the change that like youth brings and how it's scary for adults <laughs> to see things change from under your feet, but it's like a beautiful progress of time that you, you know, can't stop and you know, death's going to come for you either way. But like the new fresh ideas that are like changing the world from under you are a positive influence on the world. And it's all part of like a bigger cycle and just seeing that cycle reflected in the crowd uh, was just really, you know, I, I actually got choked up watching this 50 year old concert movie that I was reading um, critically is not respected as being particularly good. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. It's fucking David Bowie. Like how bad could it be? Was my thought when I went to go see it and it looked and sounded beautiful in this new presentation, at least. Um, and yeah, it felt a little bit like a dream of something from the past. Like he glows in that orange light, basically like a space alien or a God. <laughs> it's just like really interesting seeing him um, in this sort of like raw document. Like the movie is lo-fi and shoddy a little bit, but the art it is representing is so well thought out. And it's part of this like larger concept album and this persona he created. Uh, and I thought there was some interesting tension between the form and the content in that way. And I found it a lot more powerful than last year's Moon Age Daydream documentary that was basically like a David Bowie slideshow with sort of these like clips and laser light kaleidoscope uh, intrusions on the actual text. Like it was just way more powerful listening to him perform songs than it was someone trying to evoke the mysticism behind him uh, by playing clips of him just sort of abstractly talking. It's a pretty straightforward concert movie, but like all things become more in interesting and textured over time. So it's only gathered all of this like mystique and like, you know, the sort of degraded low light quality of the movie almost has like extra value to it a half century later. Cause you know, the further we get away from it, the less frustrating it is that it's not a perfect document. It's more like, you know, impressive that something like this was even recorded in the first place. Yeah. Demon Lover attempts to convey the demonic nature of contemporary experience and indeed of contemporary cinema. Nearly 20 years after the film was first released, it continues to fascinate. The film is a prime example of the somewhat romantic French term film maudit, damned or cursed film. Demon Lover is also prescient in pointing to the rising anxiety about the role that the internet, as a lawless wild west, would play in our lives and our fantasies. Rather than the internet luring us in with addictive forbidden imagery, we're now more worried about the fear of surveillance, of loss of privacy, of algorithms controlling our responses without our realizing it. I am continuing a streak of watching Criterion Channel picks of movies that I never thought would be available to me. Uh, in the past, we watched Kamikaze Hearts and Flaming Ears. And uh, those were like kind of recent things I heard about that looked interesting. And it was just shocked to see them sort of pop up on Criterion Channel. This one uh, that I picked today, Demon Lover from 2002, is a movie I've been wanting to see for years and years. And it's just been like unavailable in the U.S. in any way whatsoever. Uh, it might have been available in this like R-rated cut where they cut out some of the sexier imagery from it. Um, but if you wanted to watch this movie for the longest time, you had to like import a region two Blu-ray of it from Europe, which, you know, I'm a cinephile. I'm dedicated to this hobby and everything, but I'm also not, uh, you know, a wealthy person. <laughs> so I've been sort of waiting it out. And uh, finally, Demon Lover is on Criterion Channel. It's not 
My Demon Lover, which is a movie we've talked about before, about a man who turns into a demon every time he's horny. Right. And it's not Demon Lover from the 70s, which is a low-budget horror film shot partially in Ted Nugent's house, which Brittany and I did a whole episode on one time. It's the 2002 movie from Olivier Assayas, who is a somewhat renowned French filmmaker. He's been around for decades. Uh, most recently, he was famous for his two collaborations with Kristen Stewart, uh, Clouds of Sils Maria, and Personal Shopper, which are both kind of those like sensible, restrained dramas we were talking about earlier in this but podcast. I think they're interesting enough that yeah, they, they kind of stand out. And he, he also made this rambunctious youth culture movie called Cold Water that I really liked in the 1990s. And his work extends even further back beyond that. So he's just been around. And in the early 2000s, he had this sort of like crisis where he's like, I need a change with the times. I'm not keeping up with current imagery. I'm not engaging with the world as it is now. I'm kind of stuck in this older French filmmaking. Um, so he wanted to make something cool and hip and distinctly part of the new millennium that was approaching when he wrote it. So he hired Sonic Youth to do the soundtrack to this. I was wondering. I was like, I love this soundtrack. This is Alley music. So, okay, thank you for confirming that it is factually Alley music. Yeah, it's definitely them doing that droney, no wave sound from the early in their career. It's Which it's not I a lot am of, in love with. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's not a lot of melodic rock and roll because they do have a lot of pop tunes in their repertoire, but it's more of that like ambling droney stuff but the guitar will sort of pick out a rhythm and then sort of like unravel it immediately uh so a lot of the movie's really scary even sometimes when nothing's happening just because the soundtrack is so intense uh if you watch this with the captions on you will see the phrase ominous droning so many times it's constant (laughs) sometimes it even says open parentheses constant ominous droning close parentheses it's great it's amazing not proprietary to david lynch other directors are allowed to do it as well it's true although this movie owes a lot to david lynch that's not really where my mind went. I was actually thinking of it as the new French extremity version of Videodrome. I also thought Videodrome, yes. <laughs> you know, it's not something that would strike you immediately as a Cronenberg knockoff because it's not a body horror film, but its basic right. setup is the same dramatic scenario as Videodrome, just sort of like reset for the early millennium. Um, and it it's also um, very cold and calculating the way that like recent Cronenberg has been. It's a very heady movie, even though it is like kind of a trashy erotic thriller just, that just happens to have this sort of like Euro art house prestige to it. So in the movie, Connie Nielsen plays a kind of executive assistant who's low level in this like media company, but she's very hungry for more power within the, the system of this corporation. Uh, the media company is in the process of acquiring a Japanese pornography studio that primarily produces hentai. They themselves are transitioning from hand-drawn hentai to this like new 3D modeling that they need more money to produce to keep up with the times. And so th- there's a tour of their production studio where Connie Nielsen watches really upsetting sexual assault hentai for a couple minutes, and then it transitions into this new, more abstract 3D rendering of super heroic pornography that uh, is very just bizarre and very cerebral it's not 
two characters having penetrative sex. It's it's more the sort of like abstract ogling these like three D animated babes with like very plastic and like yeah. in many ways much less. Uh, there, there is like a huge quality difference between like what we see in the traditional hand-drawn animation, like, and we actually do see people painting on those cells, right? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it is definitely of a, a different quality than what we had just seen. And yeah, the movie kind of indulges in that new texture to the digital era in a way that I think is both scared of it and disgusted by it, but also just sort of playing around with the imagery, like. This is a director who's used to shooting on 16 millimeter and most of the movie is shot on film, but there's a lot of like the online pornography parts that are filmed with these like handheld digi camcorders that Asayas filmed himself on set. And, you know, he's playing around with these, this new technology and also sort of reflected in the movie. Like the Japanese pornography is moving in that direction as well. It's becoming of a lower visual quality, but there is, a sort of aesthetic to it of its own that the movie sort of like loses itself in. And uh, yeah, there, I mean, anytime you're looking at weird digital art and Sonic Youth guitars are droning in the background, like it's trying to find some artistic quality in there, even if it is a drop in like actual craft and artistry and like the computer is doing most of the work. So, you know, in Videodrome, a cable company is buying up smaller pornography studios and James Woods finds this program called Videodrome that is about actual torture uh, of real human beings. And the more he investigates it, the more he loses grip of reality and becomes part of the machine himself. Like in the Cronenbergian way, the machines he's dealing with, including the gun he shoots, <laughs> uh, becomes part of his body and you know sort of takes over. And in this one, the movie never slips into the supernatural in any outright kind of way. Um, it, it does lose real world logic as it goes along and the sequence of events becomes very muddled in the back half. But instead of the body horror stuff, it's more of just corporate espionage where Connie Nielsen is both facilitating this deal with the Japanese company, but she's also a corporate spy for a rival media conglomerate called Mangatronics that wants to, you know, fuck this deal up from the inside. And as the movie goes along, I don't want to spoil who's working for who, but there are multiple levels of like corporate espionage here. And like characters know more than they're letting on. There are people who are being like double, triple crossed by their competitors and their coworkers um, who are sort of covertly working for the other side. And the more power she tries to gather in this very touchy deal that's going to make some people a lot of money, the higher the stakes get with the violence. And much like in Videodrome, she sort of gets subsumed by the machine. She gets eaten by the corporate production of this pornography. And much like in Videodrome, she finds a subdomain hidden within demonlover.com, which is the one that she's officially taking over, called the Hellfire Club. Hellfire Club! (laughs) Sorry, every time I saw it, I had to say that. I was like, Hellfire Club! (laughs) I mean, it looks a little bit like fear.com like early mm-hmm. 2000s horror. Mm-hmm. And I almost wish this movie was called demonlover.com. I think that's a better title. It is. But, uh, oh, I, okay. <laughs> but, I mean, that's just, that's just my aesthetic interest in this time period of like dial up modem internet. It absolutely makes sense that, that you would want that. And I love right. that for you. 
I mean, this is an internet. This is an erotic thriller of the early internet era. But anyway, on the Hellfire Club subdomain, she is witnessing what appears to be real life torture of adult women that users are sort of directing. And there's this er sort of extra added layer that it's all women dressed in recognizable pop iconography. Like it's a woman dressed as Laura Croft. It's a woman dressed as Wonder Woman, a woman dressed eventually as Diana Rigg in the Avengers British series. Yeah. Just really vile violence perpetrated on women dressed as pop icons. And there is a lot of moralistic finger wagging, I think, about like how the internet commodifies the human body and like these things that sort of seem like ethical fantasies of unethical scenarios, like the the manga and hentai porn is very much playing with taboos of like sometimes underage characters and torture of women but it's like well it's not actually happening to real people it's like a fantasy that the creators are indulging um that the audience can derive pleasure from this sort of evil taboo um safely without anyone getting hurt and then you know you dig deeper and it's like well actually people are being human trafficked to torture for pleasure just one layer of artifice beyond what you're seeing on the website yeah like one layer of html code <laughs> no right, way right. yeah which, I mean, it's pretty similar to, to Videodrome as well. And Videodrome is, I would say, one of my all-time favorite movies. Like, it's in my uh, yeah. all-time oh, top good. five. Yeah, well, I think we're all in agreement on that. Yeah. Long live the new flesh, indeed. And I love this as well. And I think it achieves the same thing that Cronenberg does so well, which is like, yes, there's this initial layer of ick where he is, like, sort of morally distancing himself from, like, the disgusting details of sex and like the violence of sex but also there's more going on there where it's like he's sort of expressing an unease that's like just below his own initial surface there's something pulling him towards this material and he's sort of disgusted with himself for gazing at it this long and i think asayas kind of pulls off the same trick here where like there is some moralistic finger wagging in it but also you can tell he's drawn to this material for a reason and the sort of fetishistic iconography on screen is something he's indulging for reasons I don't even know that he could express if he had to explain it. He's just like trying to tap at something uncomfortable and something vaguely erotic, which is pretty impressive for a movie that really is just like a bunch of boardroom deals gone wrong. Mm -hmm. um, they get increasingly violent. Um, I should also mention, as far as the nostalgia factor goes, um, not only is it heavily drenched in early 2000s internet culture but it also harkens back to the time when i believe all of us would have been first watching movies for the first time in like a serious way and it was just like really great to see a smart thriller with chloe sevigny and gina gershon in it <laughs> and i found that to be just as like nostalgia inducing as anything else um, i don't know if y'all loved demon lover as much as i did but i hope you got something out of it Oh my god, it was so good. Yeah, it Hell was yeah. really good. I really enjoyed it. Like, okay, I'm going to be superficially uh, critical for a second. Like, this is the most baseline of critical uh, comments, and I hope y'all will excuse me and won't send me to, like, YouTube vlogging for uh, movies, but there's the scene where Chloe Sevigny is nude on a bed 
playing PlayStation and it is an yeah. entire mood. I'm just like, I want oh, it's to do great. this. She is so funny in this she with like really such is. little dialogue. Yeah, she's like so good. Gina Gershon as well. Gina Gershon is so sassy. Oh my it's god! Like Paris Hilton era way. It is so funny. Uh, the power in this Gina Gershon performance. Yes. It is for someone with like less than ten minutes of screen time. Really, yeah. like yeah. from her first appearance to her last, maybe ten minutes of this movie, and her presence is so strong in it. It's a really big performance that she gives. It's so dripping with that like banal evil because yeah you know you, that that is sort of what at least the first half of this movie is about and the second half in a different way it's that you know uh corporations don't give a fuck about anything and even like their all of their interpersonal commentary and like the things that they talk about uh, is all related to how do they keep chasing the dollar? Like, how do they keep trying to make money? Chloe Savini mentions a babysitter in this movie multiple times. We don't know if she has a daughter. We don't know if she has a son. We don't know anything about that. Like, everything about anyone's personal life and how anything that's not related to the performance of, like, making more money for this corporation is just background. Completely irrelevant. Like, in any other movie you would know at least whether or not she has a son or a daughter or, mm -hmm. or two children or more. Not a lick of that in this movie. The only thing that we do know about her is that she she likes to play her video games naked and who amongst us uh, doesn't <laughs> feel the same? Yeah, and it's such an aesthetic thing of this movie is that it simultaneously is like, you know, as carefree as somebody playing PlayStation nude, like in the early aughts. And also just like you said, like this very like erotic thriller, but then something weirder to it as well. You know, it's very hard to pin down this movie. And I love that in my movies. So I mean, purposely so like a lot of things that happen in sequence are impossible. Mm -hmm. Like the imagery that Connie Nielsen sees the first time she visits the Hellfire Club hasn't been filmed yet in the chronology of the movie. Yeah. And then later you're trying to piece back, well, when, when did that happen? If what we saw was there and did this person die after this other thing happened? Like the back half of the movie has this sort of like, uh, like let, let's go of the handlebars of the bicycle. And it's just like, okay, we're fully in it now. Um, let's just see what awful feelings we can dredge up and not really worry about the logical sequence of events. Which, you know, is always where my heart is. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, See, I don't really care anymore. <laughs> my interpretation of that was different, and it's also more mundane, so you might hate it. But when she first visits the site, it does not look like real footage to me. Yeah, it yeah. looks like it's all done with the same sort of, like, bad early 2002-era PlayStation uh, 2-era like CGI modeling that they have in their pornography that they're trying to produce. There are a couple of really quick shots that do look like real people, but to me, the rest of that, all of that on that computer screen looks like it's computer generated. And to me, my interpretation is that they did sort of like, because part of what this is about, at least conceptually, is that like the more depraved we are, the more it will escalate. Which is why, like, you know, the porn is getting worse and why they have to have all of these legal sanctions and all of these legal, you know, terms laid out so that they can never be held accountable legally for the morality of it, even if, you know, 
like you were saying earlier, their animation, one of the things that, that it comes down to is a discussion about whether or not certain characters have pubic hair. Because oh to yeah. the Westerners, that reads as it being a child. They get, they have this discussion, like, did, did you have underage models? Did you base it on images of underage people? And they're like, no, 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 no. It's, you know, that's not what's happening here. And they're like, well, the characters are underage. And so what you're seeing is this sort of compromise of values constantly where they're like, oh, okay, it's fine if it's not literally a child, even if the reading of this like animated character not having pubic hair does mean that they're read as a child by like the ultimate audience and the intended audience. And so what we are seeing sort of is this uh, particular website, the Hellfire Club, also getting more and more deviant, deranged, and deadly to the point where whenever Gina Gershon is like, oh yeah, it's an uh, interactive uh, torture site, and then you see it, I thought everything was intentionally CGI, and it's like, oh, okay, it's not a real torture site. It's like they're doing it to these CGI characters, but it does eventually escalate to that. I didn't read it that way, but I, I see where you're coming from. It's just, it's just that this shot that repeats later is like so exact. They're so close. Yeah. There are some of them that are so close, but to my eye, one of them was like clearly like PS2, and one of them was like a person. I don't know. I, it, well, there's also but... like digital layers of like pixelation added onto that stuff mm -hmm. too, to yeah. like sort of like up the digital like degradation of the the imagery as well. And my interpretation of it logically was no more interesting than yours. <laughs> like what what I put together was that what was filmed happened during her blackout or that oh. her discovery of the website was later. I don't know. Basically I was like trying to logically piece the movie back together after the editing deliberately made it messy is the way I was engaging with it because basically well, I don't I want to get into like spoiler territory, but I mean, this movie is 20 years old. <laughs> yeah, I hear what you're saying, but it's also been unavailable for a long time. OK, and like, all right. OK, yeah, I wouldn't want it spoiled for me, I guess. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I just I wanted to release you from that burden if you were feeling it. But if if it's not a burden, it's a moral choice, then I support you. Yeah, I don't think we need to spoil it either to like get into what it's doing or saying. Yeah with any clarity. So maybe I should just like back away from how I saw that sequence of events. But I, I do want to go back briefly to what you were just saying about those boardroom discussions about the escalation and like sort of like legally towing the line of like what's acceptable, which I think is a large part of what's happening and also ties into what you were saying about every character is motivated by money and nothing else. Yeah. It's very prescient that way. Yeah. So like, in those discussions, they're never bringing up the possibility of a child having been harmed for this material mm -hmm. right. from any kind of like moralistic objection or like shock or horror. It's all legal. It's like we cannot be seen doing business with someone who has done this. So like yeah. even the Hellfire Club stuff is just like we need to make sure that you are not legally tied to this subdomain because that would reflect poorly upon our gigantic mega corporation we can't we can't have the shareholders be vulnerable to that uh which is chilling yeah <laughs> and it never stops being gross so like the back half even though it gets messy uh in a lot in like a linear logic sense i think only hammers that home the more upsetting the imagery gets and you know devolves into actual torture of human beings yeah 
I loved the opening sequence where there's the poisoning on the airplane or the drugging on the airplane. It felt like something out of Mission Impossible. Yeah. And that was when the movie like really, like really had my attention. And it is sort of interesting. Like I can see how someone like looking at this as a script would be like, why do they take two separate trips to Japan? But you have to, because you have to have the first trip where there's a discussion and then the plane drugging and then the second trip, even though it does make it kind of more uh, messy narratively from that perspective as well. But I, it was, you know, her getting escorted out. And there's, uh, there is something really interesting going on with uh, Karen. Um, I love, I love that this, this woman is named Karen. Yeah, movie, I was going to say, um, <laughs> it's good. Uh, so, you know, she gets drugged and it's an opportunity for our main character to get closer to this legal deal so that she can provide more information to the competitor and all of that is very interesting to me because I love, you know, I love a conspiracy thriller. Um, we talked earlier about heists. This is not a heist per se, but it is sort of heist adjacent. Well, they did they did drug her to steal her briefcase that she was handcuffed to. Yeah, uh, that, had the yeah. that is in true. It, so. A little bit. Yeah, there's some real, I mean, the corporate, es- the corporate espionage in this movie is more espionage than it is corporate. It's also specifically about globalization, too. So, like, mm-hmm. those trips back and forth from Paris to Japan and, you know, the Americans coming in led by Gina Gershon, like... That is important to the themes of the movie as well. Yeah. Even if it, if it just seemed like busyness for its own sake. Well, yeah, Gina Gershon comes for the after that second trip. It's also true. You're right. You're right. There's That's definitely relevant to it. I also, uh, there's the scene where Karen is in the hospital after she's been drugged and left in her uh, car trunk, where she's talking about how she feels like a victim of sexual assault. And there's this moment where Chloe Savini is like, that didn't happen to you. And she's like, I feel like it. And it, uh, you know, there's, it's this very strange moment where what we come to know later about where everybody's loyalties lie. It's a very strange and telling moment pretty early on. It's funny because at that moment you're like, you know, this is someone who's seen some shit, you know, like, because I feel like a lot of survivor type people are going to be like, no, 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 don't equate these two. And you know, ultimately, we know that that is not the case. I will say I'm not 100% certain that I understand who is loyal to what at the end of this. And that's fine. I don't need to. I I don't need to know. Like, I'm not really sure what Karen's affiliation is with with any of these. Like, I and, you know, I did see that a lot of the contemporary, just to completely jump tracks on this train of thought, I did see that there were a lot of contemporary critical reviews of it that talked about how much it changed right in the middle. But as soon as our lead was also having to like do a murder in a hotel room, I was like, yes, (laughs) I love this. I was really on board from that point forward. Like I understand it's a big narrative jump, but I love it when, when a movie takes a risk like that. And it, it worked for me where it's like, yeah, we've just been watching her do you know, some corporate spying and reporting back to her real boss and taking payments, you know, through a Swiss bank account for handing over legal documents. If that was going to be all the movie was, I was going to be like, this is so boring. So once murder comes in, you know, it's a good time. Of course, because it was me, I wasn't not into that. But I understand what you're saying. Well, a lot of that stuff, too, is interrupted by the hentai imagery that they're purchasing and also just like the Tokyo nightclubs. Yeah. He does break up that stuff 
with a fairly consistent rhythm so that you're not only looking at fluorescent lights and people in suits. Yeah. But there is a lot of it. <laughs> it's a very cold clinical movie that's sort of trapped in these office buildings in a way that I normally only get out of Soderbergh movies. It was kind of cool to see yeah. that used in a different way. It's it's just that it takes so many strange turns, and some of them are very typical of an action movie. Like, we get a car chase, and... <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, there's that dramatic, like, balcony-to-balcony climbing to break into the hotel room and the discovery and, like... Which prompted me to say, in those shoes? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of shoe stuff in this. There was a, you know, there's a lot of focus on her shoes, and then Chloe Savini has that uh, meeting with Gina Gershon where they're trying on boots, and then um, whenever uh, our lead is being um, sort of harassed, by someone who knows what she did, they like go in and cut up her clothing and there's like particular lingering shots on her very pointed shoes that she wears throughout the movie, which are now like cut up. I really, I'm not sure what exactly that's about, but like, does it have to be about anything? I don't know. I I mean, fetishism. I was going to (laughs) say fetishistic stuff. There's some fetishes that are so far from my mind that I forget about them. I mean, Gina Gershon zipping up that boot that goes all the way up to her knee. I mean, that's pretty overt. I think. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so pure and innocent. I don't know. It's also just a movie that's set in Paris with all these like rich people spending money. So like the fashion is going to be a highlight no matter what. Oh my God. Everyone is so chic. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> There's that one that one red blouse that Chloe Savini wears with the black dots that's buttoned up mm-hmm. the back where I was like, holy shit, that is like iconic. That's an iconic garment. Yeah. That's kind of what felt so disingenuous about people celebrating the return of the erotic thriller over the past couple of years. Because a lot of the like smaller American studios are trying to get back in the game, especially streamers like Netflix and Amazon mm-hmm. Prime and stuff like that. And it's just like... Well, in France, they never really stopped making them. And like, you know, this isn't that different from like the Michael Douglas era of like Hollywood erotic thrillers. It just happens to be more fashionable and less scared of actual sex. Mm -hmm. So even since then, there's been like, you know, earlier in this conversation, you mentioned Knife and Heart. And then also I'm thinking of like Double Lover was a really good one from a few years ago. Like they're still cranking out erotic thrillers in France. Uh, that are just like a little more cerebral and a little more fashionable than what we were used to in America. So like, if you're really hungry for that stuff, it's out there. You just have to like kind of look at the can lineup from every year and stop waiting for Netflix to spoon feed it to you. Yes. Wow, Mike dropped. I think there's a lot of value left in watching a dirty French movie. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's still juice in the can. Yeah, I agree. It, it is. Uh, there's something about this one, and I don't, maybe this is the wrong way to think about it, and I, I'm going to ask if you felt the same way. This felt like a cyberpunk movie to me. Yeah. I buy that. Because it is sort of a noir and it's all about like secret websites and human trafficking behind the secret websites and even like the dehumanization of pornography. Like even the porn mm-hmm. is all like it, it, the porn requires technology. Like that sex requires technology now. And that's such a, like a cyberpunk idea. Um, so this, this to me feels like a French director making like a, a kind of Eastern cyberpunk sex thriller. Well, yeah, there's like a time period when this was made where this would have felt futuristic. Yeah. And like, it was on the cutting edge of things happening in 
online media in a way that like most films would not have shown on screen for fear of looking like the lawnmower man or something like that. Right. <laughs> or uh, to, to reference a, an American erotic thriller like Disclosure, which has a really goofy VR sequence that I love. But since then, you know, it's been 20 years. It's like now a kind of retro quality that I think most great cyberpunk kind of has. Yes. Mm-hmm. Almost by default. And I will say it, it's because of the flip phones. I was, close, I was literally about to say flip phones. So, yeah. Yes. But I also know how long Brandon had a flip phone. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. Until the 2010s. Yeah. I, I hold on to that. I got my first smartphone in 2014. I might have been around the same time. Yeah. I was going to I put say, it off as long as I could. I think we all got our first smartphone around the same time. But also, like, at its core, this is a movie about the dark web, which I yes. feel like is a very, which like, you love. concept. Yeah, I do love it. Yeah, you do love do it. You love the dark web. I do recognize that there is a quality difference between this and Fear.com, but I do also acknowledge that uh, they are kind of hitting the same pleasure center in my brain. <laughs> so, like, it's kind of nice to have one that's actually well-crafted that I can kind of point to and, you know. Say that I, I like it and it's good. I respect your self-awareness about this and I don't disagree. <laughs> I think that they are sort of existing in the same space. Well, if you want to see extra Demon Lover footage, there is a online user. If we're going to be talking to internet speak for a minute. Squirt Reynolds, who has oh uploaded God. hours of behind-the-scenes footage of this film. There's two behind-the-scenes features. One is... Asayas, you know, filming on set, and you get to see a little bit of his style. And uh, what I really liked was seeing him play around with the digi cameras. But there's also an extra 30 minutes of him in the studio with Sonic Youth, uh, trying to describe what droning sounds he needs to connect one scene to another. Okay. Uh, as they're like sending takes back and forth. So thank you, Squirt Reynolds, for your contributions yeah. to YouTube. I appreciated that bonus feature. Your contributions to humanity. <laughs> And I guess if I have one question left, it's like, do we cover Legend of the Overfiend on this podcast at some point? A movie I've never seen and don't really want to. Okay. Just for completionist's sake. Uh, completion of what? It's like the tentacle porn movie, uh, which oh. something I haven't really been exposed to in my life until watching this. And there were like a good 30 seconds of just straight tentacle porn on the screen. Was it only 30 seconds? It felt like a it lot longer. Like forever. It felt yeah. like forever. <laughs> Really did. Um, and it wasn't just tentacles. It was also like sea snakes. And yeah. Um, so if you're asking for a vote, my vote is no, that we do not watch anything. <laughs> that is good, just, good. just that. <laughs> Had to ask it. I felt compelled. You are absolved. Okay. Well, next week on the show, we are watching Mac and me, which is arguably worse for your brain. Oh, I thought Legend that was a joke. Brain. No, we are. Oh, okay. Well, the thinking is that, this year has seen so many movies that are just feature length product placement. And I know we're all buzzing to see Barbie this week, but like that's also part of that cycle. So we kind of wanted to talk about product placement in movies. And I think Mac and me is a really good centerpiece for that discussion. Uh, it was not my topic. It was James's, but I, I co-sign it. I think it's a really smart way to talk about what's happening in cinema right now. What are some of the other movies that have been pure... Other than, well, I, I guess Transformers, always. Well, that, but, you know, there was a movie 
entirely about the creation of flaming hot cheetos oh right all of those like awful biopics that are yeah there's yeah. one about okay. uh, right. nikes there's one about tetris like there's just movies that are just straight up brand awareness boosters that are just basically feature length ads so yeah e- even though i'm very much excited to see barbie along with everyone else it, it is part of this larger trend that's very disturbing you know the movie's gonna be good and it's probably worse for the world than it is in some ways yeah Mission control to brain police Free love key energy